Well, good morning. Good morning. You got to hear from Todd, our senior pastor, a little bit ago. My name's Christian. I'm one of the other pastors here at Cornerstone. And if you're new, welcome. Glad to have you. We're in the middle of a series in the book of 2 Corinthians. So if you have a Bible, go ahead and open up. We'll be in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. You know what? I forgot to grab my clicker again, guys, in the back. So if somebody wouldn't mind running that up to me, I would appreciate that. Uh, well, we are in, uh, in chapter 7. It's actually the same passage that we looked at last week. Last week, we really zeroed in on verses 8, 9, and 10. And this week, we're going to really zero in on verses 10 through 13. And as a matter of fact, we're going to kind of use that as a springboard to look at uh, some ideas throughout Scripture. So they'll all be up on the screen for you. But if you're dexterous, if you know your way around the Bible, uh, feel free to follow along on your own. But I wanted to be able to put it up on the screen so that we can follow along together. But last week, if you were here with us, in 2 Corinthians 7, we focused on... This verse right here, 2 Corinthians 7, verse 10, where Paul makes this statement that godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, in a contrast to worldly grief that just produces death. Last week, we really focused on that idea of of godly grief, of of what it means to have a God-oriented, God-focused sadness over our sin, over our disobedience and our desire to just live our lives our own way. To have a God-focused sadness over our sin because we realize that ultimately our sin is God-focused. That it is between us and God between it's even before it's between us and anyone else. That sinful, sinful actions are not just mistakes or bad decisions, or just oopsies, but they are the intentional failure to honor God, to give Him the devotion and the allegiance that He deserves. And an experience of godly, God-focused grief over your sin prompts us to be God-focused in the way that we deal with our sin, to go to Him and say, you are the one that I've sinned against. You are the one who can rescue me from this. And that's what Paul says here. He says, when you have a God-oriented perspective of your sin, you grieve in a way that, he says, produces something. It's productive grief. And what it produces is repentance, a, a turning from our sin to God. That's what that word repentance means not just to feel sorry, not even just to apologize, but to truly turn from sin. And as we saw last week in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, this whole circumstance, this whole topic comes up because Paul had been confronting the Corinthians on their sin, that they had followed these false teachers who brought a false gospel. And in following those false teachers, they were going away from Jesus. They were no longer following Jesus. And as he confronted them on this, of the sin of what they were doing, and he continues to explain to them what it really means to follow Jesus. For many who received his letter, they turned. They saw their sin, they saw what it meant to follow Jesus, and that turn, that change of mind and will and allegiance, that's what repentance is. One theologian, he distinguishes it from both the sorrow over sin and the actual fruit of a changed life. The thing that connects those two, the kind of the hinge on which all of that hangs is this idea of repentance, to turn from sin to God. Does that make sense? Okay, because what he talks about here, this is so important because as he says here, this is a repentance that leads to 
salvation. A repentance that leads to salvation. Not just the rescue from sin and death, but even this idea of forgiveness and new life forever with God. So it's important that we grasp repentance if it's connected to salvation. But he also says that this is a repentance that is without regret. Last week we talked about how Paul sends this harsh letter to the Corinthians. And at first he regrets sending it because he knows that it's going to cause them grief. But when he receives word from Titus that they actually turned, they repented at his letter, he's like, I don't regret this anymore. And neither do you because it had its proper effect in your life. Maybe over this past week, you've been thinking about a time or a circumstance, or maybe something happened this week where you had someone come and open your eyes to sin that you were blind to before. And you were grieved over it, yes. And it was painful, but it led you to change. Do you regret that pain? Do you regret the uncomfortability of being shown your rebellion against God if it produced change in you? Now, I know that for many of us, sometimes we can think back. In moments of weakness or isolation, our thoughts can go back to the temporary pleasure that we once got from sin, that we once got from sinful actions or attitudes that we, we, we went with. But it doesn't take long, if you're thinking back on that, to remember, okay, not only did that give me pleasure in the moment, it brought a lot of pain. It brought a lot of brokenness to my life and my relationships. I remember what it was like to feel enslaved and trapped in that sin. I remember the way that even the pleasure that that sin gave me, it was only momentary. It was a vapor. It was here and then gone. And it could never actually deliver on the promise of pleasure that I went to it for. And suddenly, as you're thinking through all this, it's like, well, why would I go back to that? Why would I go back to that measly little substitute of the thing that could never actually deliver on the promise of pleasure that I went to it for? The promise of hope and lasting stability in life. Why would I go back to that which we could never deliver that always caused me more pain than help that actually drained my life because it could never give me life? I don't know. No, thanks. <laughs> I'm good. I have found something better in Christ. That's what this idea of repentance without regret is all about. That's what we're focusing on this morning. It is a repentance that though it begins with grief, it continues and is sustained by joy as we learn, like we just sang, just how good and stable God is and compared to so many other things we encounter in our lives. As we talk about this idea of repentance this morning, let me give you my four main ideas, the four big hooks that I think we need to hang this understanding of repentance on. And it's this. Repentance is always a matter of faith. And second, repentance is a lifelong pattern. It's not just the way we begin our Christian life. It is the Christian life. Third, repentance is three-dimensional. There there are three key aspects to it. We'll spend probably a longer amount of time on this point because as you see by it up there, there's three parts to it. And then the last one, repentance is spiritual. That's where we're going to go this morning. 
So let's start with the first one. What do I mean when I say that repentance is always a matter of faith? Now, this is a very important place to start because I know that for many Christians, these two ideas of faith and repentance can create a lot of tension in, in our minds. Especially when you read a phrase like what we see in 2 Corinthians 7 verse 10, this idea of repentance that leads to salvation. I know even some of you right now are going, oh gosh, that just, no, I can't go with you there because I know what Paul writes elsewhere, like in Ephesians 2, that no, we are saved by grace through faith and it's not of our works. Repentance refers to something that we do. So if you say that repentance leads to salvation, you're automatically falling into the heresy that we call works salvation, that there is something that we do to earn salvation. And I want to be very clear. In no way am I trying to say that we can somehow earn our salvation through something that we do. Our salvation is a gracious gift of God. And repentance is part of that gift. Check out the way that the, the early church wrestled with this in the book of Acts chapter 11. They heard from Peter that Gentiles had come to faith in Jesus, and at first this doesn't make sense to them. And then they realized these Gentiles had been given the Holy Spirit just as the Jewish believers had. And they go, oh my gosh. So then, God has granted the repentance that leads to life even to the Gentiles. He's given them repentance. Ephesians 2 says that he gives us the grace, the faith through which we are saved, and that includes this idea of repentance. As we often say around here, we are not saved by works, but we do have a salvation that works. That it's not just a matter that we believe something different than what we believed before. We are different than we were before. Does that make sense? These two ideas of repentance and faith are more closely together than we typically think. I mean, look at the very first sermon that Jesus himself preached. Mark chapter 1, verse 15. Jesus comes into the area of Galilee and he begins to preach that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is at hand. So people ought to repent. He actually commands them, repent and believe the good news. Repent and believe the good news that Jesus is bringing the kingdom of God. We just sang about that in one of the first songs we sang. This idea of he is bringing with him the good rule of God over all creation. And that is good news that we ought not only to believe, but repent and believe. That to believe the truth that Jesus is the king that God has sent to rescue us means that you're also turning from what you used to believe. To trust in Jesus as King and Savior is to turn from what you've been trusting before. It is one and the same motion. There's this great book that's been so helpful to me as I've prepared this week. Uh, it's a book called You Can Change by Tim Chester. Some of you guys, I know, have read this book. Some of you, as you've come to Cornerstone for counseling, you've gone through this book as part of that counseling process. But if you haven't read it, I would highly recommend this book to you. And I want to share with you this one quote, the way that Tim Chester describes the connection, the relationship between faith and repentance. Check this out. He says, Turning to God in faith and turning from sin in repentance are the same 
movement. And he gives you a little illustration. He says, okay, stand facing a window, then turn and face the wall. To turn and face the wall is to turn away from the window. Now, there's windows on both sides. So I was like, okay, I could have you look that way and that way, but then there's both windows. So let me, let me, let me give you a little illustration of this. Really, I, I'm a graphic designer in my spare time. I don't know if you knew that. I made these really high-tech graphics. But here's what we're going to do. We're going to pretend. Can we bring up the band lights a little bit too? Sorry, Billy, but your music stand is going to be the Sin music stand. If it sticks. I did not test the tape beforehand to see if it would work. All right, can we see that? Here's our Sin side. And then Kayla, because she's just so sweet, she gets to be on the God side. How about that? I realize I think I drank too much coffee this morning. Oh my gosh, I am jittery. Good thing I'm not doing surgery. All right. That one stayed. Is this one going to stay? Always check your illustrations beforehand. All right, that's the, that's the motto of today. All right, can everybody see that? The thing he's illustrating here is that to pursue sin, to put your trust in the way that you want to live your life, is to head in this direction. And it's not about adding God to this direction of your life. To trust in God is to turn from trusting in yourself toward God. It is one moment. You cannot turn to God without turning away from sin. That's why he says this. He says, you, just as you can't turn toward the wall without turning away from the window, you can't turn to God in faith without turning away from sin in repentance. Now get this. He says, when we trust God, we are affirming that he's bigger and better than our sinful desires. So repentance itself is an act of faith. You see that. Another even shorter quote comes from a guy named John Murray where he said it this way. He says, the faith that is unto or that leads to repentance is, or that leads to salvation is repentant faith. And the repentance that leads to life is believing repentance. They are Two sides of the same coin. Does that make sense? All right, so that's our first one. Repentance is always a matter of faith. The second one I want to talk about is this idea that repentance is a lifelong pattern. Now, I didn't share this at 9 o'clock, but last week at the 11 o'clock, I ended with this quote from Martin Luther. It's actually the first of his 95 theses that in 1517 he posted to the door of the Wittenberg Church that launched the whole Protestant Reformation. And the one that he started with was this. When our Lord and Master Jesus Christ said, repent, he willed the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. That this turn from sin to God is not just the initial act of our Christian life. It is the ongoing action of our Christian life. We were talking about this in our sermon prep meeting and Bob Krejcik, who's part of our sermon prep team, he was telling me about this plaque that he bought at a Christian bookstore back in the 70s when he was a brand new believer. It's way before I was born. So, um, no. <laughs> uh, but he, he bought this plaque that said on it, repent, and then in parentheses, notice, if you have already repented, please disregard this notice. And he's like, I loved this at the time because I was so happy that God had turned me initially from my sin to faith in Jesus Christ. But what I became, be, uh, began to believe as I studied Scripture more was, Oh, if you've already repented, you don't disregard the notice. You keep repenting. 
You keep uncovering more sin and turning from it to God. This is the ongoing pattern of the Christian life, not because we're on some sort of spiritual treadmill where we just keep going, 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 and never get anywhere, but because as we get somewhere in the Christian life, as we draw closer to Jesus, that very nearness to Jesus brings to light how much more we need to change and continue to repent. Does that make sense? This is the dynamic that, that John talked about in 1 John chapter 5, where he said this. He said, this is the message we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him is no darkness at all. So if we say that we have fellowship, partnership, that we are together with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and don't practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we actually have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. To walk in the light is to actually have partnership and fellowship with God and to experience cleansing from your sin. What does that fellowship cleansing process look like? Well, look at the very next thing he says. Well, here's what, here's what fellowship and cleansing from sin looks like in our lives. If we say we have no sin... We're obviously lying because we're in the light with Jesus and it's blatantly obvious to him and to everyone else around us. No, really, you do. If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins as the light of God's presence exposes the sin in our life and we acknowledge it for what it is, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Understand this. So often when we become aware of our sin as followers of, of, of ongoing rebellious patterns in our lives, when we see the need to repent, it feels like failure. Oh man, I let God down again. But understand this. Awareness of sin is such a gift from God. Awareness of sin is actually a sign that you're on the right track, that you are drawing near to Jesus and the light of his goodness is bringing to light the badness that remains in you. It means you're on the right track. Don't lose heart. Don't go back into the dark. Stay there and let the blood of Jesus Christ cleanse you from your sin. This also means on the flip side though, that if you find yourself walking with Jesus and somehow thinking, or even worse, saying to others, yeah, I'm a pretty good person. Stop. You're going the wrong way. Like, seriously. If, like, there is no way that you can pursue closeness with Jesus and find your confidence in your own goodness growing at the same time. To be near to Jesus is, and you see this throughout Scripture, anytime people came in contact with Jesus, it was a humbling but joyful experience. So which is it for you? But think about this for a second. The fact that repentance is a lifelong pattern just is a testament to how gracious our God is to us. Only He knows the depths of our sinfulness and the deceptiveness in our thoughts. And if for any one of us, he were to just back up the truck at one time and just dump on us 
all of the ways that sin corrupts and affects our lives, it would crush us. So what our loving, gentle, patient, persistent Father does is He walks us over the course of our lives, uncovering a little bit more at a time. Okay, you're growing in repentance in this area of your life. Now let me show you where you need repentance in this area. Okay, you've done a good job addressing this issue, but let me show you how that issue is actually connected to about 16 other issues in your life over here. Have you experienced that? Okay, I, I specifically was aware of sin in this area of my life, and then I went, oh my gosh, this is just, the roots of this just tangle into so many other areas of my life. That's the gracious process that our Father takes us through. And in the process, we find that we both grow up and grow down at the same time. There is such joy as we see true change and growth in our life. And there is so much humility as being in the light shows us how much we still need to change. That's what it is that repentance is a lifelong pattern. But what do I mean when I say that repentance is three-dimensional? We're going to camp on this one for a little bit. This is important for us to understand because I think that for most of us, especially if we spent much time around the church, we, we're familiar with this word repent to repent. But I think our minds, all of our minds, probably most quickly go to actions. There's things I'm doing I need to stop doing and I need to do other things instead. And action is absolutely an essential part of what it means to repent. But it's just one part. It is just one dimension of this three-dimensional reality. I mean, look back if you're still in 2 Corinthians 7 in your Bibles. Look at the way he talks about this when he explains, starting in verse 11, what repentance looked like for the people that received Paul's harsh letter. I won't read the whole thing, but you just see the words I highlighted there. Their repentance showed itself in earnestness, in eagerness, in indignation, fear, longing, zeal, punishment. Again, at the end, earnestness, eagerness, zeal to change. The terms that Paul uses to describe the repentance of the Corinthians, most of them don't refer specifically to actions themselves, that the Corinthians did, but to the motives, the desires that fueled their actions. And all of this was in response to truth that Paul presented them with of where they had gone off track. And they grappled with the truth and didn't just go, oh cool, thanks Paul for more information. But that information prompted an emotional, willful response in them that led to action. That's what I mean when I say that repentance is three-dimensional. That it is the interplay of what, not just what we do, but also what we believe and what we desire. Does that make sense? When we talk about repentance, it's not just about changing external actions. It's also about confronting what lies have we believed, what wrong desires or just misplaced desires are going on in our heart, and how does that all come together in our actions? Repentance Listen to me. Repentance has to be three-dimensional because sin is three-dimensional. Sin involves not just our actions, but our beliefs and desires as well. Let me illustrate this for you by taking you to where the whole problem of sin first started for us as humans. To the story of Eve and the serpent in the garden. Check this out. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, 
Did God actually say you're not allowed? Look at all these beautiful trees. God really tell you you can't eat from these? Well, the woman said to the serpent, no, we, we may eat of the fruit of the trees of the garden. But God did say that you shall not eat from the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, this one that's known as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Neither shall you touch it. She, she, God didn't say that. She just added that on to protect herself even more. But you can't eat from this one tree or you'll die. The truth that God had told them was all these trees you can eat from except for this one. Here's what happens next. The serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. God's lying to you. God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will become better than you are right now. You will become like God. You will know good and evil. So, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband with her, and he ate. Let's break this down in light of these ideas of desire and action and belief. Sorry, this one. Here we go. You see... What was going on in Eve's processing in this, there was the choice to believe a lie. God had said one thing, the serpent said something else. She believed what the serpent said. Not only did she believe something that was not true, she also desired something that God did not want her to have. And I said it specifically up there. She desired good things from the wrong source. Look at what it says about her desire in that verse. She saw that the tree was good for food. Is the desire for food bad in and of itself? No. As a matter of fact, God created us with the desire not just to, not just to need food to live, but also to want it and to enjoy it. And as we just said back in chapter 2, He created a whole multitude of trees for them to enjoy. But there was one that He said not to eat from. The problem is that Eve took the good desire for food, the God-given desire for food, and then sought to satisfy that desire in the only way that God had forbidden. See that? Not only that, look at the next one. That the tree was to be desired to make one wise. Is the desire for wisdom bad? No. There's a whole book in the Bible, the book of Proverbs, that from front to back is all about saying, wisdom's good, you want it. Go after it. But it is also very clear to say that it is the fear of the Lord that's the beginning of wisdom. That the reverence, the allegiance, the obedience to God is the way to access true wisdom. So again, Eve takes a good desire, a God-given desire for wisdom, and seeks to satisfy that desire in the one way that God had forbidden. And if we're going to get serious about repenting of our sin, we have to grapple with that. So often our sinful desires are, are, are really desires that in and of themselves at their root are not bad. Therefore, God-given, God-designed things like love and relationship and security and, and even pleasure. But what we seek to do, just like Eve, is we take good desires that God's given us and try to fulfill them in the wrong way. Look again at what Tim Chester says about this. He says, we choose to follow our sinful desires because in that moment, we believe they offer more than God. But faith is the realization that God is much, much better than my sinful desires. 
And when we affirm this in our hearts, we will inevitably turn from those deceptive and empty desires, those things that could never deliver on the very thing we went to them for, to find true satisfaction in God. So, Eve believed what was not true. She desired something good in the wrong way. And then she acted upon her beliefs and her desires. That's what we mean when we say that sin is a three-dimensional reality. And so therefore, for repentance to be three-dimensional means we have to approach it from all three of those angles. I'm going to throw these questions up for you. There may be something in your life right now that's running through your mind, an area where you know you need change. An area where you know you need to be different than you are right now. And I think for many of us, we fall into two camps. Either one, we go, what do I need to do differently? Or we say, what book do I need to read to give me more information? But really, repentance comes not just by picking which category we want to go after, but seeing that it really is this three-dimensional, it is the interplay of all three of these realities that it's at the root of our sin. And it actually is the path to true repentance. What lies do you need to turn from? What truths do you need to turn to? What wrong, sinful, in and of themselves desires, or just disordered, you're connecting a good desire in the wrong way, do you need to turn from? How do you need to find that, that your desire for identity and satisfaction and status, actually God's designed you so that He's the one who fulfills that. Turn from finding that in your career or in that relationship or in the way that you can beat everybody at the board game or whatever it is, the stupid ways we get competitive because that's where our identity is tied into being better than others. And understand, you're meant to find that sense of identity and satisfaction and security in God. What sinful actions do you need to turn from? What, what right actions do you need to turn to? True repentance always involves all three of these dimensions, but not always in the same order. Because there's really not an order to them. It's kind of these three things that orbit around each other. Sometimes in our lives, the process of repentance does start around the idea of belief. That whether through somebody else or through our time in God's Word or even through preaching like this morning, something is revealed to you to go, oh my gosh, I have believed a lie. I have put my eggs in a basket I never should have put them in. I have tied my actions to wrong understanding. What I need to do is turn to the truth of who God truly is, who He says I truly am, the way He says the world is really designed to work. And it's a change in belief that starts this process of repentance. Sometimes it does originate with desire. Someone shows us again that the security or the, the things that we're going after, we're looking for love in all the wrong places. And we need to take those desires and attach them to who God is for us in Jesus Christ. Other times it does begin with action. What I'm doing is wrong. I need to change this. But wherever the process begins, our task individually and together as a church body is wherever the process starts, bring the other two dimensions into it too. Really do approach rep repentance in our lives from all three dimensions. So if it's an action right now that you need to change, what I would say to you is this, dig in. What are the beliefs and desires that are behind that action? For instance, maybe it's anger, right? The, 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 the one emotion that it is socially acceptable for men to express. Everything else, men have bought into the lie that all the other emotions are somehow feminine. 
which is why we have a hard time with David writing so many psalms that are so ushy-gushy about his love for the Lord. It doesn't seem manly to us. There are lies that we've believed about what the emotional range of the male in God's design is meant to be. I didn't plan to go there, but that's, that's huge. We, we like to go to anger. That's the one we know how to use, right? And we, we can look at that and go, okay, I know. I know I'm short-tempered with my wife. I know I'm short-tempered with my kids. I feel bad about those. I don't feel bad about being short-tempered with the guy who cut me off on the way to work this morning. That one, I feel entitled to feel anger about that. But what do we do with anger? Actions of anger. Don't just read up on anger management. Don't just manage your anger. Don't just bottle it up either and save it for when you're alone in the car on the way to work and then just yell irately at every driver who cuts you off. Get to the root of it. What are the desires that you're pursuing that when you don't get what you want, that's where the anger really comes from? You think right now it's the action. What's really at the root of it is there's something you feel entitled to have in life, a way you feel entitled to be treated by others. Is that valid or not? What are the beliefs or the expectations about the way you think your life should work? Are those valid expectations? Are you believing what's true? Is actions of anger, angry words, really the root problem? Or is it just the fruits of believing lies and desiring wrongly? Now, now we're working through all three dimensions of this. Let me share with you what this has looked in my life over the last few months. As a pastoral staff here at Cornerstone, we've been going through this study on gospel transformation together. And one of the things that's been part of the study we've done is is to identify an area in our lives where we need repentance, where we need to see God change us. And as I prayed through this, the one that came up to my mind, it didn't take long, was was the the dual, the two-sided issue of selfishness versus service, especially with my wife and kids. I think many of you can relate to this, especially when you, you, you work a long day and you come home and you feel like, I clocked out. I am entitled to rest now. And I find myself getting into those habits. I developed selfish habits that, that I, I, I wasn't quick to serve my wife and kids, but I was quick to point out ways that they could serve me. Hey, you could do this. Hey, can you grab me this? Hey, while you're over there, can you grab that for me? I recognized that there was something off in my actions. But again, based upon what what others had taught me through God's Word, I went, okay, I don't want to just say, okay, let me do a good thing. What's behind this? What are the desires and the the expectations, the, the, the wrong beliefs that are behind this? What do I both need to turn from and what do I need to turn to? I went to God in prayer and I was like, okay, Lord, if I can just see this in these couple of ways... This must, there must be much more. This must just be the tip of the iceberg. Would you help me, Holy Spirit, to do business with what's going on in my heart? And here's some of the things that I, that I uncovered in that process. One of the lies that I realized that I had believed in my self-serving attitude, um, it was a really kind of subtle one, and it took me a while to, to, to arm wrestle. Well, it took God a while to arm wrestle me to the ground and help me see how this was wrong. And it was this. I want my kids to develop servants' hearts. So really what I'm doing is I'm trying to help them be aware of opportunities to serve. And the subtle thing about it, the reason why it took me for a while is because it's, it's not entirely untrue. 
I do want my kids to develop servant's hearts. I do want them to develop an awareness to see opportunities to serve. But the lie that I had believed was that my job was basically to be the foreman standing on the shovel saying, you need to do that, you need to do that, you need to do that. The truth I needed to turn to was to look back at the Gospels and see the way that Jesus taught his disciples to serve. Yes, there were times where he sent them out to go and to do. But he didn't just point out how they could serve. He, he taught them to serve by serving them. Most powerfully, in that moment in the Last Supper when he gets up from the table and gets on his knees and washes their feet. That if I want my children to have a servant's heart, I need to have one too. That it needs to not only be taught, it needs to be caught. I, I started asking God in the midst of this as well to help me recognize those moments. Those, those things that, again, in my deception, in my, my own selfish desires, I would easily just sidestep opportunities to serve. Lord, would you help me to see opportunities, even just blatant little things like, hey, can I get, get an extra napkin? Help me to see those, and before I say, hey, can somebody else, whatever kid's closest, go do that. Can I do that? To jump up and do it. To, to before I, to, to counteract the habits I had built to have other people serve, when I'm aware of it, God, would you help me to act in that moment and do it first before I expect somebody else to do it? Like after dinner, uh, before I'd say to the kids one more time, you got to clear your places. Pick up your plates and bring them to the sink. Do it. Serve them. Do it. Not only that, like I love like one of those little like weird things about like home life that I love. I love loading the dishwasher. I love it. Get it. It's like Tetris. You get it all right. You go, I, I could not possibly fit another thing in there, and it's all so good. So what I found was that I was more than happy to load the dishwasher after dinner. But all the pots and pans that don't fit in the dishwasher, yeah, that ain't my thing. All right? So again, this is where it gets practical, right? And I go, Okay, Lord, then help me in that moment after I load the dishwasher and I'm so satisfied by the good Tetris job I did, jump in and do the pots and pans. And I started to do that and go, okay, Lord, would you help me to, to have that heart to serve? And, and so then the other night, here's where it gets really funny. Um, then the other night, I, I'm, I'm sitting there. I, I load the dishwasher. I'm washing the dishes. Jen's upstairs getting the kids ready for bed. And I'm just sitting there going, oh, I'm enjoying this. I'm loving serving my family. This is so good. Like, God, you're really changing me. This is great. And, and as I'm having this little prayer conversation, I hear that one of my kids upstairs is having a meltdown because it's past the bedtime. Another one is being scolded because he still hasn't picked up the toys he was told to pick up that morning. And there's just generally a whole bunch of noise upstairs. And I'm just going, oh, this is so peaceful having this little time with the Lord right here, right? You know? And seriously, like I'm, I'm pretty dense. So the Holy, it was like the Holy Spirit literally like smacked me upside the head. He's like, you dope, don't you see? Yeah, you're washing the pots and pans, but you're doing this to serve yourself. This is the way you would rather serve right now than where your wife really needs you to serve right now. It's like, oh Lord, I am a mess. It's just, okay, Lord, forgive me. Leave the pots and pans, get up there, go help out where. Like, do you see how twisted this gets? Do you see how even actions that seem like repentance can just be your sinful desires reconnecting in a different way? It's really like dandelions. You pull it up, and if you don't get the whole dang thing, it just comes up somewhere else, right? We need help. Our twisted hearts will even twist our repentance to channel it in the way that is most comfortable and least abrasive to us. We need help. And this is why my last point is so important. Redemption or repentance is not only a three-dimensional reality, it is a spiritual reality. And I don't mean spiritual in terms of like churchy or religious or new agey. 
but spiritual because repentance is the work of the Holy Spirit in us. The whole, that's what I mean by spiritual. The Holy Spirit, God Himself, the third person of the Trinity who dwells within those who truly are followers of Jesus. He is the one who not only makes repentance possible, I would say based upon my study of Scripture, He makes repentance inevitable. If He truly as it were, is at work in your life, you will not stay in the dark. You will draw near to the light. You will not remain as you are right now. You will not remain long-term to the rest of your life enslaved in this same sin. Why? Because the Holy Spirit, hear, hear me, the Holy Spirit is more powerful than your sinful desires. Do you believe that? Because so often we get so good at putting internet filters on and making sure that we protect and protect and protect because I think at the end of the day, we really don't believe that the one who is in us is greater even than the sin that remains in us. Repentance is spiritual in all three of these dimensions. That's why Jesus said that the spirit whom he's given to live in us is the spirit of truth. He turns us from lies so that we might believe what is true. The Spirit who lives within us doesn't just come to us with truth. He comes to us with different desires. Look at the way that Paul describes this in Galatians chapter 5. He says that the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh, and these two are opposed to each other. Now think about this for a second. This has huge implications for us. If you are a follower of Jesus and you're struggling and wrestling with sin in your life, you're not only dealing with your sinful desires. The Holy Spirit has brought with Him godly, good holy desires that he is weaving into the fabric of your heart. And the result of that is tension. The result of that is feeling like there's a war going on inside of you because there is. The desires of the Holy Spirit within you, the desires of your flesh, your sinful nature are opposed to each other. But take heart. Because you're not alone in this battle. You are fighting a winning battle. It's a battle of truth. It's a battle of desire. It's a battle of action. In the next part, I won't read all of it, but he just goes through all this information on here's what the actions of the flesh look like versus here's what the fruit of the Spirit looks like. Now, we're probably more familiar, like as far as like Bible memorization with the fruit of the Spirit, in our lives, we're probably more familiar in our actions with the stuff that's on the top. But you may even, I mean, sometimes, honestly, that fruit of the Spirit passage can, can be really discouraging to some of us. You can read through that list and go, okay, yeah, I've got some of that. Like, I've got a little bit of love. Sometimes I have peace. Sometimes I feel like I don't have any self-control. But understand, this is what the Holy Spirit is at work within you to produce. Not just one or two of these attributes, but, but all of them. It is one singular fruit that he is seeking to produce in your life. The Holy Spirit's work in our lives is to apply the work of Jesus to our lives. And so this is the way he finishes that passage. This is, gives us so much hope in our battle for repentance. He says, those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. It doesn't often feel like that. 
often because we encourage the desires of our flesh. We play around with them. We look at them and we coddle them and we entertain them. And we go, why does this feel so strong? But if you truly are a follower of Jesus, then what's true of Jesus is true of you. He has died to sin so that you might die to sin. And the Holy Spirit is the one who applies the truth of what Jesus has done to us so that we might change. We are fighting a winning battle against an enemy that is already dead, though we are still putting it to death in our lives. Repentance is spiritual. It is the Spirit's work in our life. He does it, and we are called to keep in step with Him. We don't just wait passively for Him to do this. We don't just sit there and go, well, if God doesn't want me to do it, He's going to have to change me. Yes, so get going with it. Join Him in that. If you live by the Spirit, keep in step with the Spirit. Here's the way that I want us to wrap up. Sometimes we often will close with a song. But I don't know about you, but throughout this week, there's been so much that God's bringing up in my life that He wants to change in me. Perhaps as I've been speaking on this, you've been thinking at different times about areas where you know that you need to change and grow as well. So the way that I want us to wrap up this morning is I'm going to put these questions up there that I put up a little bit before. And if we truly need to, in dependence upon the Spirit, approach repentance as a three-dimensional reality, start that conversation now. I'm going to give you about four or five minutes, just quietly. I'm going to ask Billy to come back up. I think he's just going to play softly as we spend some time reflecting and praying. You won't be able to do all the work that you need to do in these five minutes, but start a conversation that will continue both between you and the Lord and between other believers in your life. Uh, I would say if you're in here, please don't, please don't hop out and leave right now. Even if you're going, I'm supposed to help out the ministry fair. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a heads up to, or a head start to get out of here in a couple of minutes. But for all of us, seriously, if we believe that repentance is not just the way we start our Christian life, but is a lifelong pattern, it means we all have work to do here. So take some time right now. These five minutes are yours to sit and pray and wrestle through this. And then I'll come back up and close our time.
Father, thank you so much for your patience with us. Thank you for the gentle, patient way that you work in our lives, guiding us on this path of repentance repeatedly throughout our lives. Thank you that you're not done with us. Lord, I pray that anyone in here who's settled for the lie that right now they're as close to you as they're probably going to get in this life, Lord, would you break down that lie? Would you show us more of your beauty that we might long for you, that we might truly trust you as better and more desirous, as the true object of our desires? Pray that you would uncover the lies that we tell ourselves, the lies that we pick up in the world around us, the lies we're not even aware of right now. Would you show us how much better your truth is, Lord Jesus? Holy Spirit, would you turn us from the works of the flesh and bring your fruits to life within us in love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Thank you so much that we are not alone in this process, that you are not just a schoolmaster who grades us on success or failure. Holy Spirit, you are the agent of transformation in our lives. You are the one who gives us new life, who opens our eyes to the gospel and continues to do that. Lord, would you cause all of us to leave this morning with a renewed desire to keep in step with you, to walk by the Spirit down the path that you're leading us on toward a fully three-dimensional repentance. We won't do it perfectly, but would we be persistent? Would you not let us settle? Would you keep us moving, Lord Jesus? We ask this in your name. Amen.